Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Hello and welcome to the Indie Cider Podcast, where I play indie games and then interview the developers. My name is Ken Gagne, your host, and this week I'm playing The Flame and the Flood, the debut game from The Molasses Flood, an indie studio based right out of here in Boston and composed of alumni of Irrational Games, creators of Bioshock Infinite. The Flame and the Flood, which I backed on Kickstarter, was released out of Steam Early Access on February 24th for Microsoft Windows, OS X, and Xbox One. I was originally drawn to this title due to its comparisons to Oregon Trail, one of my all-time favorite classic games for the Apple II computer, about traveling from the East Coast to the West in the 1800s and trying to survive throughout the wilderness. This game has some similarities to that. You are a young traveler named Scout, and it's some sort of post-societal America. We don't know what's happened, except there are very few people, lots of ruins, and lots of flooding. You have a raft and you are traveling down a river, stopping at various ports and docks to see what you can find, whether it's scraps from some survivors who are no longer there, or wild animals that you can kill and skin, assuming that they don't kill you first, or whatever other ruins you might find. Crafting takes on a big role as you collect cattails and mulberries and rags and oil and combine them into weapons and traps and additional clothing, such as rabbit skin gloves. A dog travels with you. His name is Aesop, and you can put additional items in his little carrying bag in case you run out of room in your own satchel. And you can also store away items on your raft, but they are inaccessible to you while you are on the mainland. You'll not only need to brave the river and make sure that your raft doesn't crash and that you drown, but also maintain Scout's health by keeping her warm and dry, which might mean additional clothing or seeking shelter when it rains, and also making sure she eats, sleeps, and drinks, and ensuring that what she eats and drinks is safe to eat, that it's been cooked, and that it's not poisonous. There are so many different ways to die in this game. Snakes, bears, wolves, boars, ants, a variety of health maladies, I have barely made it out of the second area of the game. There are ten areas, so I can't tell you what happens at the end. But it is procedurally generated, almost like a roguelike, in that the docks and ports and course of the river change every time you play the game. There is also permadeath. When you die, you don't just go back to the last dock you ported in. Based on your difficulty setting, there is some potential to restore to some earlier point, or even to let Aesop retain what you put in his bags, the dog's bags. But on the harder difficulty setting, when you're dead, you are dead. The art style is very stylized, reminds me a little bit of Discourse, which was an earlier game in this Indie Cider series, except that game was more 2D after a fashion, and this game is definitely 3D from sort of a three-quarters top-down perspective. There is the potential for Scout to get lost behind some of the surroundings, such as if she runs behind a tree or a bus, but that's rare and usually not problematic. The soundtrack is by Chuck Reagan, and it is very southern, I guess you would say. It's not often I play a game where the soundtrack actually has lyrics, but as you're jamming down the river, that will bust out. The Flame and the Flood definitely falls into the category of a survival game, and I can't say that I like or dislike those because I am inexperienced with them. I've not played FTL, for example, or Don't Starve. I'm also generally not a huge fan of crafting systems, which is why I have not yet played Minecraft. I'm probably the last person on Earth to admit that. But I found The Flame and the Flood to be a pretty fun game. It's really annoying when there is a specific item you need to create the item that allows you to create the item that allows you to create the item, this whole cascade of crafting that needs to happen and you're just missing that one item. 
But that's just the nature of the game, and it's also somewhat realistic. Nature doesn't give you what you need when you need it. I also have some issues with the inventory management. There seems to be a lot of times when I need to be moving things between my backpack and Aesop's packs and the raft, and then going back to the raft to get stuff so I can bring it back to the mainland where the fire is, which I need to cook something. But it was also fun to be going about these different docks and just collecting all this stuff, because you never know what you might need. Some old lumber, well that could be used to repair your raft or to start a fire. But you don't have enough lumber to do both, so which one do you do? If that sounds like the kind of challenge that you would like to check out, then go to themolassesflood.com, where you can find the game on Steam, GOG, good old games, Humble Store, and, as mentioned, Xbox One. The PS4 port was a stretch goal that the Kickstarter did not reach. But you'll be hearing more about that, and the Kickstarter, and the game, and the many ways to die in the post-societal world. In this interview with Gwen Frey, one of the six team members responsible for The Flame and the Flood. If you want to see the game being played paired with the interview you're about to hear, go to IndieCider.net slash 40, because this is episode number 40, and that's where you'll find Let's Play footage of The Flame and the Flood paired with the interview you're about to hear. You'll also find the link to the podcast in iTunes, where you can leave a review, or to follow me on Twitter at the handle GameBits, where you can recommend games for future episodes of IndieCider. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the interview. Today I'm speaking with Gwen Frey, the animator and biz dev for the debut game from Molasses Flood, The Flame in the Flood. Hello, Gwen. Hi. How are you tonight? I am good. Fantastic. It is the eve of you flying out to GDC. You must be running around trying to get everything done at the last minute. Oh my god, you have no idea. I have procrastinated way too much, and it's not even like the normal stuff where you have to pack and you wait till the last minute to pack. It's like, I probably should have finished up my slides for my talk. Like, I've taken procrastination to the next level this time around, because I'm actually speaking at GDC, and I'm literally editing slides tonight. Well, you've been to GDC like a half a dozen times at least, but this is your first time speaking at the event, right? Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. And what is the subject of your talk? Uh, well, I'm giving two. Uh, the first one is going to be a, a micro talk. That's one I'm, I've like waited too long on, uh, and that's just that's just fun. It's like a comedic little bit about uh, how being an animator kind of makes you a little bit strange. And the other one, the there's a I'm doing a talk at the main conference on Wednesday at 11, and that talk is about animating quadrupeds. So it, it's a really nerdy and technical. It's a deep dive into how to animate quadrupeds uh, for video games. Using any particular software like Maya or Unity? I try not to. Um, I try to give techniques so that people can take that and use it in whatever uh, you know authoring application they're using. I, I don't want to do something that's only Unreal, as much as I love Unreal, uh, or only Maya, because then it's less useful to people who are coming from other studios or who are using different software. So I, I try to keep it pretty general. Excellent. There will be a link to that in the show notes, and I know that the GDC Vault is really good about getting videos of the talks up afterwards, so I'll update this podcast with those links as soon as they're available so everybody in the world can see your talk. Awesome. Well, hopefully, yeah, hopefully it pans out well. Otherwise, I'll be begging you to, to not do that. <laughs> to be footage of me just, like, curled up in a ball weeping. <laughs> well, take this podcast to be practiced then. All right, cool. Yay. So, as I mentioned, you are animator and biz dev. For those who don't know, what does that latter title entail? So, when you work on a small studio, you have to wear a lot of different hats. Uh, and I, obviously, I'm the animator, uh, and I do like the effects for our game, and and I I do a lot of narrative scripting and stuff. But I also do biz dev. Um, I don't necessarily 
talk to the press as much. That's more forest. Uh, this is actually really unusual for me. They don't usually let me out of my cave. Most of what I do is just uh, analyze whether or not certain business decisions make sense or things like I run our QuickBooks, I pay our taxes. A lot of the boring stuff you don't think about that goes with running a studio. Um, making sure you have sales tax to sell the game at PAX. Things like that are the kinds of things I take care of. I like the term CFO because it sounds more, you know, important than administrative assistant. And we all mostly handle our own email. It's just Forrest and I kind of split up the business side of things into, uh, he's an incredible speaker and he's the designer. So he's the one the press usually wants to talk to. So he does a lot of talking to the press and he does a lot of, um, uh, going out and making deals and getting deals. I do more of the, uh, boring that no one wants to do. That seems to be the story of my life. I, I actually enjoy it. I enjoy figuring out uh, if we're going to be in budgets this year. I like to. I like having the company bank account. That that's pretty cool. And I, I like looking into the business side of of games. I like looking into uh, how different marketing techniques have worked out for different people. I spend hours on Steam Spy, just going scrolling through a Steam list, looking at how games did on Steam Spy, and trying to figure out what went right or what went wrong. Um, and, and I enjoy it. I, I think it's a really interesting and fascinating industry to be uh, in and to, to think about the business side of things. So you must have been integral to developing this game's Kickstarter. Oh, man, that was a complete team effort. I can't take credit for any more than a sixth of almost anything on this game. The Kickstarter is a full-time job for more than one person, to be honest. Kickstarter is this massive... I mean, launching our Kickstarter was almost as dizzying as launching the actual product. Wow. The, uh, the just the, the sheer amount of, cause your Kickstarter is the first time the press hears about you. So you get flooded with emails. You get tons of emails from the press. They're mostly questions about the game or about this or that you get. Um, you, you just have a dizzying amount of response on social media that you have to cover uh, I remember we split it up so that Forrest took Twitter um, and I took Facebook and Reddit uh, and uh, Chad, I believe, took Ch- we always give Chad Twitch. He's always trolling Twitch. And we we basically split things up. I guess back then we didn't have Twitch. Uh, like it was such an intense month. I think I gained two years. Like I, I, I think I aged two years in that month in the month that we were in Kickstarter you're constantly trying to crank out content and keep people excited and interested and stay at the top of various social media feeds. Uh, you're trying to, in our case, we were, we were debating different stretch goals. The launch up to Kickstarter, there was a ton of work to do to determine how much, how much does it cost to ship a t-shirt to Australia or, uh, versus America and how many people do we think will pledge from Australia versus America and uh, how, where do we want to price each of these tiers? And what do we want to price the game at? You haven't even made the game yet. And you've got to figure out what the final price is for it, which is fine. It's just lots and lots of little things like this. Um, I, going through Kickstarter is an experience you can't really explain. If you meet somebody else who's gone through Kickstarter and been there and, and lived through that hell, um, you have a shared experience and a shared understanding. But to explain it... To like how insanely stressful it is to somebody who's never gone through it is actually really hard because none of these things sound hard individually. It's just this need to be constantly connected and awake every moment of every day for a month that um, 
it, it's it's difficult to describe how stressful that is. And were you still developing the game while you were running the Kickstarter? Because you went into that crowdfunding campaign with an impressive amount of assets. You had a pretty strong prototype even at that point. So did, did you set that aside to focus on crowdfunding for a month or did, were you doing both in tandem? Uh, we tried to do both in tandem. We, we intended to do both in tandem. Um, but I, I honestly have to say we spent most of that month um, uh, refreshing our Kickstarter page, talking on social media, trying to get anybody to pay attention to us and everybody to pay attention to us. We spent that month doing things, trying to write articles and get the press to print them. Because the press is um, probably a lot more likely to print something. If you make it as easy as possible, like if you like, write the article for them, the press is more likely to print it. So just coming up with content and just feeding the content beast was most of that month. I, I don't think we actually did much for the game that month. Well, it paid off because you had some fantastic footage, including a huge feature story in Game Informer. But by, I think, the time that article ran in print, I had already seen the game on Kickstarter. And what caught my eye was that it was being billed as sort of an Oregon Trail on a raft. And even Kotaku recently ran an article about the Flame of the Flood, after it had entered early access with the headline, The Flame in the Flood is like Oregon Trail, except mean. <laughs> so how much of this game would you say was inspired by Oregon Trail? Or what other games were you inspired by? Oh man, we had a lot of inspiration for this game. And I would say Oregon Trail was definitely one of them. Uh, I think when we first came up with the concept, we described it as Oregon Trail meets Tubin. And that we said that jokingly, but I think that actually kind of stuck for quite a while. So yeah, Oregon Trail is definitely a, a huge inspiration. I'd say um, Don't Starve would definitely be another inspiration. FTL. Uh, if you've ever played FTL, I love that game. It's a little bit of a problem. We we were, we were took elements of each of these games that we liked. Uh, like Don't Starve, I, I, you'll know, I mean, it's a roguelike. It's a really popular and, and amazing roguelike. Um, but we wanted to, to take that and combine it with... Uh... Okay, so I'd say in, in Don't Starve, you your goal is to collect resources and build up a, a base camp almost like the end game of don't starve is mostly you accumulate a, a camp and you uh, kind of get into this self-sustaining mode whereas we wanted something that always forced you to be moving we wanted uh, you to have this experience uh, this kind of southern gothic experience where you're always moving and you can never stay still um, we were very inspired by uh, the Huckleberry Finn um, and, and stories where you, you could never quite settle. You're going on a journey. We really wanted you to ha feel like you were going on a journey. So we, we took a lot of uh, inspiration from all of those games. Uh, we took inspiration from things that weren't games at all. I mean, our art director grew up in uh, the Deep South. So our art director definitely wanted that Southern Gothic feel and, and had a, a lot of personal stories to add to the game. Uh, we all watched several films like i think um beast of the southern wild yes beast of the southern wild was one of the ones that was required how'd you know that i've done my research okay cool yeah the um yeah that was the only one where they came down hard like everyone in the everyone in the studio will watch this movie and i i kind of like i like my popcorn flicks so i wasn't quite sure about that but uh you know what that's a, that's a good movie i'm glad i watched it that's a good film, excuse me. I'll get in trouble. That's an excellent film. I'm glad I watched it. So you've been inspired by a lot of games, and you've worked on some amazing games yourself, like Marvel Heroes and Bioshock Infinite, but those games are very different from The Flame and the Flood. How would you say those experiences prepared you 
for this latest adventure? Well, you know, it's weird. Everything builds on everything else. And as you gain experience in life, you you will find ways to apply what you've done in the past to what you're currently working on. Um, and I, I mean, there's just the, the obvious. Working on a lot of games, you'll, you'll get to know your engines better. For instance, both Marvel Heroes and Bioshock Infinite used Unreal. Uh, so moving from an Unreal game to working on another Unreal game, uh, there was not much of a technology hurdle there. We managed to overcome uh, any any kind of technical barriers pretty quickly. What else? Let me think. I'd say Bioshock Infinite definitely was the one that most prepared me to work on on um, the Flame in the Flood. Partly because that's where I met the team that I'm working with. Most of the team is from Bioshock Infinite, and we all work together there. And there there is something. It is important to be able to work with your team. Uh, making a game is a very collaborative process. And because we'd worked together before and we all knew each other and we all knew how to work together, I think that really bootstrapped us a lot. Also, I would, I do have to say, Bioshock Infinite had an Americana art style, and I don't think it was, it, it's nowhere near as awesome, if I can say this, as uh, The Flame and the Flood. Scott Sinclair, our art director, was art director on Bioshock Infinite and on The Flame and the Flood. So they're both his art. But um, I feel like he really stepped it up for the flame and the flood. I think our art style is is gorgeous and interesting and, and twisted. And I'd say Bioshock Infinite did kind of help get me in that mindset to, to go for something that's brighter and uh, that feels more Americana. Awesome. So here's another side of that same coin. What aspect of this game were you not prepared for? What part of your work history did not prepare you for the flame of the flood? What sent you most out of your comfort zone? Oh man, there was a lot of things that I had never done before because I moved to a smaller studio from, I went from working at a studio with hundreds of people to working in a studio with six people total. So things like talking to the press, I've never been on a podcast until about three weeks ago. I, I wasn't prepared to go talk to the press. Uh, that's always the most jarring and nerve wracking thing. I think between that, um, most of the challenges I, that I was faced with, I was really excited to face. So it's difficult to call them negatives. Like I, I it was kind of cool to learn how to do effects. I had never had to do that for a game before. Uh, it was pretty cool to learn how to to learn QuickBooks and learn how to run a business. That was actually pretty awesome. Um, I don't think I was prepared to run the production of a studio, which I didn't. I don't think anybody did. I'm actually amazed we got the game done without a producer or anybody kind of cracking the whip. But um, so I, I think maybe in the ideal world where the studio grows, I think a producer was probably in our future. Oh, well, it sounds like you filled that niche neatly. Uh, I don't think I did, actually. I'm pretty sure Forrest was more of a producer than me. I'm sure maybe you were a sixth of the producer then. <laughs> That's fair. We did all produce ourselves in a big way. We all uh, kept ourselves under the, you know, under the gun to keep everything on time. So the first time I saw you speak was at the Boston Fig Talks, where you gave a great talk, and one of the things you talked about was the same thing you'll be talking about at GDC, which is animating quadrupeds. And you were animating wolves, boars, and then other creatures that aren't quadrupeds, like snakes. I saw your video about how you had the rest animation, how they curl clockwise or counterclockwise. And in one of your time-lapse videos for animating a quadruped, I saw you watching YouTube videos of the real-life analogs of the animals you were animating. So how does one learn how to model 
these creatures like if unless you go to the zoo and maybe you did how do you know what a boar moves like man you really did your research this is awesome you've looked through all my uh, youtube videos i didn't want to waste your time no way all right awesome so for for all these creatures i mostly used real life reference um not in that i would go find a wild boar because that's kind of impossible but i i do uh go on obviously youtube you caught me there but uh, Animal Planet, um, I I look for reference in documentaries. And uh, for snakes, I, I found some gnarly snake documentaries, and I, I watched a bunch of those. Wow, very cool. Although, I guess if you really want to be true to the game, you would go find a wild boar and live the life that Scout did. Oh, yes, of course. Travel with nothing but your backpack and a dog down, the, down a river in the southern Americana. We'd have to end society first, though, in order for everything to come together. Well, hey, if you survived last winter in Boston, I think you can survive anything. Oh, man, that winter was rough. (laughs) So speaking of ending society, did you see the movie Tomorrowland with George Clooney? I have not. It's a mediocre film, but it harkens back to what we used to think the future would be like with the Jetsons and these ray guns and jetpacks. And it was very optimistic, you know, Star Trek style. And nowadays, it seems like whenever we look to the future, we have zombie apocalypses or post-apocalyptic worlds like Station Eleven or The Girl with All the Gifts. And The Flame of the Flood kind of fits that genre where something has happened to this world and it's all gone to hell and Scout is just trying to survive. But there has to be some degree of optimism in there because otherwise there's no reason for Scout to keep going. She has to be optimistic that she can make it another day and the player has to be optimistic too. And the gameplay offers them reasons to be optimistic by offering them various caches and supplies. But the art has to support the gameplay and vice versa. So what does hope look like? Wow, there was a lot packed into that question. (laughs) I know that you're more the animator than the art direction, but I'm hoping you might have some insight into this. Okay, what does hope look like? Interesting. I I will say... uh... All right, step one. I'm not sure I'd entirely agree that um, we look to the future and we, as a society, overwhelmingly see something that's totally bleak. I think, like, The Martian is a good example of looking to the future and seeing something that's kind of, you know, cool and what humanity is possible. But that's kind of tangent. No, it's completely fair. I mean, you shouldn't take my question for granted. And that is a great example. That was a great book and a great movie. Yeah, I I think um, there is... There's just so much media now that depending on your what you're looking for, you can go find it. You can find media where the future is happy. You can find media where things are bleak. And I will say our game is bleak. The world is dangerous. We were, we were trying to simulate how in real life, if, you, um, if, if there was no society and you were trying to struggle and survive, the, the most basic things like dysentery could be your undoing. And we, we wanted that to be part of the game. As for how the art... Uh, mirrors that that's an interesting question the the art is dangerous and you will notice at night everything gets darker and there's you know you can see eyes following you and and the world is mysterious and dark uh, and we were going for that but the world is also beautiful and the world is very much unknown keep in mind our, our entire game is random so we wanted to have that mystery in the art as well as in the world so I, I think the having the art style be kind of mysterious and a little bit weird was really a benefit. And I'll, I'm a huge fan of what Sink did there. 
I think, um, in a way, sometimes the art is a little too beautiful in a way that's good. I find sometimes I'll want to stop and, and run around in an island and look at all the things and I'll forget that I'm dying. And I think that's dangerous too, in a way. I think the art is like this, having beautiful art like this in a game where you have to constantly move is kind of toying with a player. It's kind of making things a little bit difficult. Now you have to choose. Do you want to stop and smell the roses? Because the roses might have snakes, you know? Wow, that's uh, everything is out to kill you, basically. Oh, just most things. <laughs> I assume you're gathering some statistics via Steam. Can you tell me what the most common causes of death have been? Ooh, okay. I don't know what I am allowed to say. I will say it's changed rapidly over time. Uh, it used to be we've, we've rebalanced things based on what's killing people. I think right now, wolves are a pretty constant threat, especially when, um, uh, to new players, wolves, wolf death seems to be one of the more common deaths. And I'd say drowning tends to be one of the more common deaths. Uh, again, I think those two mo affect new players more than everybody else. But um, they, those, are two, those two are probably tied for the, uh, the most common killers. And if this game were actually to come to pass and we found ourselves in a post-apocalyptic or post-societal world, which one do you think would do you in? Ooh, jeez. <laughs> I don't know, man. Are you well-equipped to live in this world? No. <laughs> no, I mean, I could probably... Let's see, what would get me first? I would I would try to pet the boar and die. There's the, the stupid... Uh, like, some kind of... I would just do something silly. Honestly, I don't think I'm physically capable of using the the raft to navigate the river however i would never get on the raft because i would assume that that only that's futile anyway so i would just stay on an island until it was depleted of resources and then i would waste from whatever would kill me first which would probably be not necessarily thirst I'd, or i'd probably drink poisonous water or like some water with bacteria in it and i'd die of one of the various sicknesses you get from uh drinking still water i think that's probably how i would go well at least you're confident about it well you know i had a good run ken it's been a pretty good life <laughs> that's right you got to produce a wonderful game yeah i mean what else can you ask for <laughs> let's step back and talk a little bit more about the game's development a little bit more concrete and a little bit less bleak uh so this game came out in early access what last september was it uh that sounds about right yeah and it finally launched for real in February. I saw you had a great blog where you detailed some of the game's changes over time, like swapping out the water canteen for the water jars. What would you say were some of the biggest changes that once people got their hands on it, you said, oh, that doesn't work the way we expected? Interesting. I, for us, we had two phases, right? Like um, in September last year, we, we entered Early Access. But before that, we entered a Kickstarter Alpha so we had um, the Kickstarter Alpha is when we opened the floodgates and we really found a ton of uh, bugs and things to fix for the game and, and ways to, uh, that we really needed to balance the game. That was actually really good for us, I think, as, as a developer, because uh, before we were even in early access, we had a smaller, more exclusive early access where we got to work out a lot of kinks. And we're only six people. We, we've tested the game as best we could as six people, but there's nothing like having a couple hundred people pounding on your game. That really helped us a lot. So most of the changes that came out of that were bugs, uh, bug fixes, um, balance fixes. Uh, we, we found 
we had features that we were going to add that we realized we just didn't need to because they would just make the game worse. We obviously, a, a huge problem, I don't know if I'm going to call it a problem, something we went back and forth on a lot was thirst in our game and how uh, how you collect water. Can you drink water? Can you drink water that's from directly from the sky while it's raining? How What can you do when you're desperate? Different things like we were going to add a system where if you were desperately hungry, you could uh, cook and eat your boots. Um, we had oh. things like <laughs> We had things like that. Filet of soul. Yeah, but that, that wound up not being as important as um, just getting the core loop of the game up and going. So, as you mentioned, you are currently on a team of six people coming from a team of... How many worked on Bioshock Infinite? What, like 150? Uh, that sounds about right. Honestly, towards the end, we had so many people in QA, I don't even know what the final number ended up being. <laughs> so, there was one article that said that Irrational Games had seemingly unlimited resources, and of course, Molasses Flood has very finite resources. What one resource did you wish you could have brought with you from Irrational that you didn't? Hmm. So do you mean a resource as in something physical, like a computer, or...? It could be um, a role on the team, like if you could have hired a seventh person, or it could be a particular program or a skill set, something other than, you know, a lot more money. Yeah, more more people would have definitely helped. Definitely, I I mean, it it is it's fun and it's exciting to take on more and more jobs. But I think uh, Forrest specifically was stressed uh, was really stressed out and stretched really thin, doing both the um, talking to the press and managing kind of like PR stuff and managing designing the game. So I guess I would lean towards either maybe a designer to to pick up some of that stuff off Forest, but most likely something in the opposite end. Like, I think if we could have one thing, it would probably be a producer, somebody who could uh, help look at our timeline and manage the team um, and make sure we're all on track because there's a confidence that comes with your team and you have a producer. Uh, and also somebody that could just handle a lot of the nitty-gritty emails and, and forum support and talking to people on our forums You'll notice um, as soon as we came out in early access, we uh, someone from the team checked the Steam forums uh, every day, at least two to three times a day. Um, and it was like that for everything. We have like a contact mailing list, uh, so we get tons of emails. We get tons of, of messages on Twitter, tons, a few messages on our to our Facebook directly. And having somebody who could just manage that would have really eased up the burden of, uh, of game publishing and would have really made it... Um, easier for us to focus on development and i think that would have been the one thing i'd ask for maybe next time yeah maybe i have one question about your kickstarter stretch goals which is that one of the questions in the faq on the kickstarter was how about a ps4 or xbox one port and you said not right now we do have a ps4 as a stretch goal and that stretch goal was not met the game did nonetheless come out on xbox one do you and is that through collaboration with microsoft that made that happen Yes, that was one of the things that was super cool. After we finished our, our Kickstarter, Microsoft reached out to us and they said, hey, we noticed you didn't hit your stretch goal, uh, and that's a shame because we'd like, we'd like this game to be in the Xbox One. Uh, can, do you think maybe you'll do it anyway? We'll, we'll get you a dev kit or whatever. Uh, and um, we basically said we can't afford it because we couldn't, uh, and we wanted to make sure we had the best PC experience, the experience we promised we would deliver. Um, and then uh, Microsoft tried to like sweeten the deal they offered us a lot of help basically they gave us a dev kit and they they helped us port the game to xbox and without their help i don't know if we could have done it um so they they actually helped us do the port which is why we managed to pull it off and we don't have that kind of um 
any any promise of resources or, or uh, programming support or money or anything from the PS4. So in order to port to PS4, it would have to make sense financially. And I know this is a really boring topic, but it, it's real life, right? Uh, we can't... Porting our game, what we have now to the PS4, costs a certain amount of money. We can kind of project exactly how much money we would get from doing that. And until those numbers line up so that one number is higher than the other, we probably just can't do it because it would be losing money from a, a studio that's uh, that's very small and can't afford to spend money just to port something to another platform, you know? Right, and if you're going to release on one platform, probably the most economical one as far as return on your investment is Steam. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm trying to wonder if I'm allowed to say some of the things I'm saying right here. But uh, this is why we usually have Forrest do the talking to the press. <laughs> but um, I, for certain games, Steam is a, a, an excellent platform. If you're For PC, Steam is definitely king. Uh, and our roguelikes tend to do best on PC. So for us, Steam was definitely the, the most important. Steam and obviously other PC uh, platforms like GOG was very important to us. And since the Molasses Flood team has been so attentive to player feedback, what has the reception to the game been since its release? It's been mixed. It's Some people really, really like it, and some people really, really hate it. Uh, I mean, our, our Metacritic is uh, 70... It's in the high 70s now. Um, and I've found that it, it's very polarizing as a game, which is interesting. Some people get into it because they they really like the atmosphere and the music and the mood, uh, and some people get into it because they um, they like get they love roguelikes. Uh, but these things don't necessarily click with everybody. So some people we we get a lot of people that that return the game because they just didn't feel that it was hardcore enough, or it just wasn't the experience that they personally were looking for. But I, I think that's good in a way. I kind of like that we made something that's a little bit unique and that can appeal to people very strongly and cause a strong like or dislike. I'd rather have half the people love it and half the people hate it than have a situation where everyone just goes, oh, I don't know, it was good. You know, I, I kind of like that it's polarizing. No, that makes perfect sense. That means that you did something right. <laughs> Maybe. We'll find out. <laughs> so remind our listeners where we can find the game and the company online. Ah, uh, yes. So if you're looking to buy The Flame and the Flood, you can get it online from GOG, Good Old Games, or from Steam. You can also get it from the Humble Store. You can purchase the game on Xbox One. And if you want to know more about what the Molasses Flood is up to, we do have a blog that we're going to be quiet for a little while uh, at themolassesflood.com. Excellent. And what about Twitter? Ah, uh, yes. Our Twitter feed is at Molasses Flood. My personal Twitter feed is Dire Goldfish. Dire Goldfish. That sounds like some homebrew creature for an AD&D game. It was... I can't even explain how I came up with this. Honestly, I went. I started going by Goldfish because my memory is terrible, and Gwen Frey and Goldfish are both GF. <laughs> and then at some point it became Dire Goldfish because I was in a bad mood that day, and that's just what stuck. I would not want to catch you on a bad day. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. <laughs> I don't remember it, though. I mean, Goldfish. Right. Right. Ooh, look, a castle shiny. Well, you are flying out to GDC. Best of luck at that event. I hope that it and the Flame of the Flood both do fabulously, and if this podcast is any indication, I know at least you will be great. Aw, oh, thanks, man. That means a lot. This has been Indie Cider, a Game Bits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net. Indie